0: Hey folks, today we have a guest episode from a podcast that's probably the closest in spirit to this show that I have encountered so far. The podcast is called The History of Gay Sex, and it is all about just that, men who love other men all throughout history. Stuart has done, for example, Samurai Japan, and he just came out with an episode on Victorian London And today's episode that you're listening to right now is about the history of gay porn, which is a lot more curious than you might expect, or maybe exactly as curious as you probably expected is porn after all. It traces the evolution of obscenity laws and the struggles of a community to obtain the kind of sex-positive, identity-affirming erotic material that most of us, of all orientations today, pretty much just take for granted. But it wasn't always that way, especially for gays. In fact, it was a long and tumultuous road, and involves some deliciously back-alley kind of twists and turns that you'll hear about today. Stuart of The History of Gay Sex is going to tell you all about that. That's what we're talking about today. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. The History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. Hey, folks, these guest episodes are about more than just delivering you great content, although I do love to give you great episodes like these. But more importantly... It's part of our mission on this show to amplify voices from across the sex and gender spectrum to promote each other's work and, you know, to knit together each other's audiences around this vastly underexplored aspect of history, sex and gender. Running guest episodes like this not only fills out our buffet of content, but also acts as a kind of episode-long introduction for you, the listener, to find and check out other great shows like these. So it's kind of a win-win for everybody. And today's episode is part one of a two-part series. So after you're done here, there's extra motivation to actually go and click on over to Stuart's show to find out the rest of this very interesting story. I also want to note at the start here that we are looking for more great shows and individual episodes related to sex and gender that we can promote in this very same way, running guest episodes. We will take anything from across the sex and gender spectrum, but I would love, love, love to find some shows on the history of women who love other women, because that's just a much tougher subject in history to research. Oftentimes, women who loved other women just flew under the radar and don't show up in the historical record. It's much more difficult to research, and so you find fewer shows, fewer episodes on this. So, listeners, if you know of such a show, or even just individual episodes that are relevant from a show— I want to hear about it. Drop me a line. Absolutely. Please, please, please drop me a line. You can find me on social media at History of Pod or historyofsexpod at gmail.com on email. So please reach out to me. We'll take, you know, any aspect of the sex and gender spectrum, but especially I'd love to get something on women who love other women. All right. With that said, today we're hearing about men who love other men, and the wild adventure of creating erotic materials by, for, and about them. This is part one of the history of gay porn. Take it away, Stuart. For today, we're actually
1: going to be focusing on the history of gay porn, which... I think everyone should be really excited about. One of the things that's really interesting about this for me is the fact that this is heavily involved with the sexual revolution that takes place starting in the 50s and, you know, goes all the way through the 80s, although by the most part, for the most part, federal law is really solidified protecting First Amendment, free speech, and pornography laws. So this is going to be really interesting because we're going to do... History of contemporary gay porn as we know it. And then we are also going to be doing kind of a look at the sociological impact and how it affected the court. The Supreme Court was the major deciding factor when it came to pornography laws. I'm going to get into that. So we're going to break this up into two parts. First part is going to be over the origins of gay porn after World War II. And then the second part is going to be gay pornography and how this all was solved through our federal court system, which ultimately comes up to the Supreme Court. After the invention of the camera, there's underground porn, pornographic images that take place. A lot of it is actually associated with the French which I actually find kind of funny because I feel like as an American, there's kind of this stereotype of the French as being these people who are kind of like sexual. You know, we say like menage a trois. There's kind of this weird sexual element that gets put onto the French as an American. So I think it's kind of funny, though, that the French are the original people that we blame for being the source of erotic images, pornography, stuff like that. And that's not just with the gay world. That is all across the board. With pornography or what was considered pornography at the time obviously that definition has changed but we basically late 1800s we have what are called french postcards there are some that are actually completely nude we do have male nude versions obviously we have female nude versions the first instance of a pornographic film it's this french film i think it was created about 1920 At least, that's my understanding, that was when it was released in France. It is hardcore porn. And I guess to start off, the difference between hardcore and softcore porn is that softcore porn either involves nude images or it involves what we call simulated sex. So they're not actually having sex. They are simulating it. For a long time, uh, until about the 1970s, anything that was shown publicly had to be simulated i'm gonna get into that later on but i did want to just quickly define the difference between softcore porn and and hardcore porn so this film i'm going to totally butcher this but it's Le Ménage modern de madame butterfly and it's actually really inclusive there's two women that have sex there are two men that have sex There are obviously men and women that have sex. I want to say that there were three people at one time having sex, but I don't remember. There was one person who was, I don't know if it was purposeful, but he was very androgynous. At first I thought it was a woman. It kind of looked like a a geisha. And then I quickly realized it was a cross-dressing geisha because you could later see genitalia and and such. But yeah, it was very interesting. surprised me for the time kind of how progressive it is, or at least how we would think of it as being progressive at the time. In the 1930s, we experience what is these physique magazines. So you think of Men's Fitness, Men's Journal, all these exercise magazines. They start really coming into the fold. There was a man who created a workout regimen, and his name was Charles Atlas. So Charles Atlas was a skinny guy. He bulks up, kind of decides to take it upon himself to go ahead and, and start advertising that he's come up with this Workout routine, it bolts them up, makes men more manly, makes them more attractive for women, and you know he starts advertising this in magazines all across the nation, and real popular. It's still around today. In the 30s, it's interesting because the there are people who start talking about how they don't like the homoeroticism that is kind of being perceived in these magazines and. From some of the history that I've read about this, this is kind of also the time that public conversations are beginning to happen about homosexuality. In fact, I think at this point, every country in the West has anti-sodomy laws with the exception of France. And people are aware about it, but it's kind of becoming a part of the public discourse to a certain degree. And you have these physique magazines start coming out in the thirties, but not in any way that is aimed towards gay audiences. Now you go through world war ii you start having the rise and and pin up girls so that kind of relates i know we're talking about gay porn but that kind of relates because at the time you basically have what is something that's a little bit more culturally accepting of erotic nude imagery we'll say and you know marilyn monroe 1950 And now on the flip side, you have this changing way that we start visualizing men in mass media. That kind of goes into not just erotic images, but mass media in general, especially with Hollywood. And you see that with Marlon Brando and Streetcar Named Desire, Victor Mature and Samson Delilah, um, even Charlton Heston, ironically enough, with Ewell Brenner in The Ten Commandments, William Holden and Picnic it kind of opens up this way that changes the perception of, I wouldn't just say manliness, but just the sexualization of men. And around this time, you have a man named Bob Miser who ends up... So Bob Miser is a man in Southern California, and he lives in LA. He's from Idaho, lives in a compound with his parents. I'm not sure if his father still alive at this point. I think, he, I think his father died around the end of World War II. Mother is there, and they're living in this compound together. And he is someone who, who became really interested in photographing men, naked men, or at least nearly naked men, at a young age and fanatic photographer. So he turns a business out of it he he originally would get his male friends i think the ones who he had deemed who he had deemed aesthetically attractive enough photographs them and eventually starts photographing male models that he that he hires in some capacity he goes on to create what's called the athletic model guild amg and amg actually becomes really famous in hollywood and it all took place on his family compound which was i want to say it was just northwest of downtown Los Angeles. So he creates what is called Physique Pictorial. And Physique Pictorial is the original Beefcake magazine. And Beefcake magazines are homoerotic athletic magazines that are made for gay audiences. And they have content in them in terms of the editorials that show really who it's for. And it's really interesting because He has this element to it to kind of add some seriousness, kind of validate that it's not just gay porn or what would be considered gay porn. I want to read a quote from one of the editorials that was in one of his early magazines, and it says, physique pictorial is dedicated to creating in all people a greater body consciousness. Almost every religion teaches us that the body is a temple of the soul, and whereas we never advocate that any person becomes so preoccupied with the physical side of life that he neglects intellectual, or spiritual, we feel that the maintenance of a fine, healthy physique by those who are able to do so is to pay great compliment to our creator who planned for the utmost perfection in our universe. <laughs> he goes on to say, if we believe God is perfect and that God created man in his own image, does it not also follow that that the perfection of our bodies is of next importance to the perfection of our souls? So it's a, quite a deep philosophical justification for this magazine, but it shows you that It's not like this kind of smutty, sex-only narrative. And and in fact, you had to stay far from that at the time, because if if you had the absence of that, it was considered obscene. I'm going to get into this later uh, in the second section of the podcast. But when you get into that, it's kind of, it's really important for uh, the validation of the magazine. But so he starts this magazine, and he starts selling it in, I want to say West Hollywood. All the models are in his compounds. They're wearing what are called posing straps most of the time. So posing straps are kind of like a jock strap, except for in the jock strap, you have a broader band. And this is basically kind of a thong-like band that goes around them. And a lot of times it's skin color too. So when you're looking at it, sometimes it has the actual effect of making it look like they're nude, although you can't see any genitalia. But other times it's, it's more of like a really, really skimpy piece of clothing. So you can kind of have different different looks that they go for. So that's what he has for all of his images. And he gets all these guys to do it. I mean, you have hundreds of models after the first couple of years that he photographs. And part of this is, I think, is not only to generate images for his magazine, but this guy is obsessed with photographing men. He is not out of the closet at this time, at least not with his mother. And so the irony is that his mother would allegedly make the posing straps and would actually have them fitted for the men for the photo shoots. I mean, they are like nude. It's basically like a thong in the back with what you see with women, you know, at a beach. It it basically is so skimpy in the back that it's like a thong. So you can see pretty much their entire butt when they're wearing them. Mother has no idea at the time that he is gay and he gets into trouble. And so in 1947, he gets arrested on obscenity charges for photographing nude men. There's actually two parts to this because he would photograph nude men that he would not always publish, but he would have it. Now, in the back of these magazines, these beefcake magazines, they would put ads up and these ads would advertise for raunchier and more sexual images. To my understanding, I don't know if there were sexual images that were actually simulated that were actual like sexual intercourse, but there were fully nude images at least, and this was something that kind of had questioned the legality of these and so they they arrest him he's on vicinity charges, and it's by the the LAPD Los Angeles Police Department vice squad and this is actually something that it seems like such a throwback because you know, we obviously don't have vice squads these days, but that is what they called the department that dealt with, you know, gambling, sex workers, gays, gay bars, stuff like that. Anything that was obscene, inappropriate, pornographic. So they go in, they arrest him. His mother's aware that her son has been accused of creating homosexual obscenity images. And so he goes and he is in jail for about six months. He's in a work camp. Part of a prison outside of Los Angeles goes, comes back, keeps doing it. Around this same time, a director named Kenneth Anger, who's a very famous artistic independent film director, has not done anything mainstream that you guys would have heard of. They're all fairly short films, incredibly artistic, very surreal. Something similar happens to him. And it was suggestive at the end of this, this short film that, Kenneth anger made. I think he was like nineteen or twenty at the time. There is this part where this this actor has well, he has an erection, but then it's not. So when when he's sleeping in bed, it looks like he has an erection, but when he pulls the covers off, it's really like a prop. And so it's there's nothing explicit. It's just you know what's it, what it's insinuating. And then at the end, he has an image where this man is. He's got his pants unzipped. And when his pants are unzipped, instead of, you know, any genitalia or a penis coming out, there's a, a firework, which, you know, it's called fireworks. And it looks like, almost like a giant sparkler. And he gets arrested for this too. It gets litigated. And this is the first time, to my understanding, that in the California court, they say, this is art. It's not obscene. There's nothing illegal about it. And so... You can't go after people for this. And and it was homoerotic, too. I mean, we're not just talking about obscenity in terms of of straight porn. This was, was, you know, very much homoerotic and, and had a lot of gay elements to it. And now, a quick break with a gay history update. As the gay rights movement began to take off, In the 1960s 60 years ago this spring activists were able to score one of their first victories in the illinois state legislature the state legislature of illinois debated and repealed their sodomy laws in 1961 making them the first state in the entire union to decriminalize homosexuality and now back to the rest of the episode So Bob Meiser goes back and he keeps photographing and Physique Pictorial takes off and he's kind of considered the grandfather of these beefcake Physique magazines. Now this takes off and he inspires a lot of other people to either engage in homoerotic photography and sell to these magazines or you have other groups that sell that, are same as him kind of in-house they have their own photography guild they also have their own physique magazine and so i wanted to go and read a list of some of these because they've actually become fairly valuable these days there's a lot of people as i've come to learn who collect um, vintage homoerotic photography and they're going for a lot more than i would have ever suspected but some of the other photographers you may have heard of are bruce of la Denny of San Francisco, Gene Ferrero, who I believe was an Italian who shot a lot in France, Carol of Havana, Edward McAndrews, John Palatinis, who worked for Tomorrow's Man. That was another big physique magazine. You had Mel Roberts with Young Physique. That was later on in the 60s. You had Spartan of Hollywood, which was another big physique magazine that was really famous in Southern California. You had Stan of Sweden. Stan of Sweden is is nowhere on the caliber of Tom of Finland. And the Western Photography Guild with Don Whitman. And he was out in Denver. Now, you have a lot more that we're going to talk about in the second half of the show when it comes to the, the Supreme Court decisions. But they start to take off. And halfway through the 1950s, you can get these physique magazines in any major city. A lot of cities have their own, but you've got these big brands who are in certain newsstands all across the US. And it's really interesting because it is kind of the first time that gay people, whether open or closeted, have something that is sexually validating for them. And public too. Like I said, there's always been underground gay porn, there's always been underground porn taking place, but this is the first time it's out in the open. And one thing that was interesting about this, too, is that in the back, you had advertisements that people could take out. And so you had people that would advertise fellow gym lover looking for another fellow gym lover. Obviously, all coded stuff. But it was a way that gay people could meet each other. And, it was, and there was this one documentary I was watching. They interviewed some of the models and people who were familiar with Physique, Pictorial, and these magazines. And they talk about how it was, like, the one thing they had that was pro-gay or are not even necessarily pro-gay, that it, but it was the one time that like something was made for them. Something that showed that there was just this level of validation and almost affirmation. And it had a big impact on people. And it was the first time that gay people were ever presented in some kind of positive format. You know, for the most part of this time, if you're gay, you're mostly hearing about maybe a gay bar that has been raided they've arrested people you maybe have you know you hear about obscenity being found or or gay men being arrested who are cruising in a park somewhere i mean there's never anything that's positive at this point so it it is a big deal another thing too is that these magazines and they were small they were i think they were like only like six by eight inches they're not the full-size magazine that we we think of today they were incredibly accessible for people I mentioned that they're in every city, but but one thing, too, is that you could buy it as a closeted man because you were buying a physique magazine. You're buying a fitness magazine. You're not gay. You just like to take care of the way that you look. And so that was another thing, too, that made it a lot more ubiquitous for people is that it was veiled because it had to be at the time. But it added to a level of accessibility that you just didn't see before that. So back to Bob Miser. He's running this operation. His brother is doing the accounting and the financing. He said his mom is, she's helping out. She makes, helps make the posing straps, allegedly. And, and he starts, he has these elaborate set systems. He can take an image of some 20 year old boy in front of a backdrop of Roman ruins. Some are out in nature. So he's actually out in the, in the wilderness in California. A lot of times not though, a lot of times it's in the studios. They're in costumes. And he actually goes on to make homoerotic videos. And it's never sexual for the most part. When he first says it's the 1950s, and anything that's and that's actually put into theaters, because a lot of this did get screened. Remember, the VCR did not come until early 1980s. So it's the, the one easy way to see a movie is in a, a theater, whether it's you a know, porn theater or not. That's how you're seeing this stuff for the most part. And it... I think the most sexual it gets is the sometimes the boys when I say boys I mean they're you know 18 to 25 are are spanking each other and in, in the posing straps but for the most part it is just like just like the quintessential definition of homoerotic that you can think of and so it's funny because they they have these really like homonormative takes on certain movies there was one that I watched that was I believe it was like a, it was like Aladdin that kind of story, but it, it but you either had men that were in drag that involved women and it's just everyone is a man everyone is half naked almost completely naked it's almost comical, and he's got these elaborate sets he has all these different props sometimes he has wild animals like snakes donkeys stuff like that that they're with, and and he's able to find thousands of models to do this, and most of these models are pretty young probably between 18 and 25. They are, a lot of them are transient. So they are semi-homeless or they don't have stable jobs. One thing too that's appealing about this is they are paid way more for one photo shoot, which is like a couple of hours. I think I, think I read somewhere that it was like two hours or three hours of a photo shoot was like a week or two's worth of work. And so these guys are more than happy to do it. And a lot of them aren't even gay. From interviews I've seen with the models, there were definitely gay guys that came, but there were a lot that were straight. And one of the models even said, he goes, I don't even know if half of them, half of the straight models, had any idea what was going on. I don't even think that they knew this was a magazine that was marketed for gay men, gay and bisexual men. And Bob Miser would recruit these men saying, you know, you're gonna, if you come here, to AMG, Athletic Model Guild. We are the studio that is created on good moral values. We want our models to have model values. This is an earnest group of people. You know, and it wasn't. I mean, I I, I read their accounts about how these models would go out and hustle. Hustling is what is a term for being a gay sex worker, especially at the time. And they... Are doing Some of them are doing photographs during the day. They go out and hustle at night, and they hang out in this compound. One person even said that because half of them are transient and and don't have stable housing, they're, like, starving. They don't have jobs. He, like, gives them lunch after a photo shoot, and it's, like, the first meal they've had in a day. I mean, you know, you just—it attracts some young, desperate people who are more than happy to take their clothes off be almost virtually nude, and be photographed. The thing, though, is is that w- one element to him being successful is that he was a damn good photographer. Yes, the images are very, like, the men are very attractive. I don't think anyone's going to deny that. But he was actually pretty good, and he went on to to inspire Robert Maplethorpe, who is a... Uh, a very famous contemporary artist, and also Hockney. Both say that they draw inspiration from Bob Miser. So, you know, it, it wasn't just so much that he had created something novel. He, he was also really rather good at it. Now, in 1957, he gets arrested again. This time, it's not an obscenity. He gets accused of being like a pimp, that he's, he's part of this male prostitution ring, and goes to court. He doesn't, now he's charged of it, He's not convicted on it. There were some other photographers that had kind of a casting couch situation and or some of these other people would photograph and would, you know, sleep with their models. And it was unclear if the model was being paid for the photographs or for sex. And this included straight models too. It does show that there's, you know, it's not all rainbows and roses in this industry. And and that's something that is characteristic of it, you know, even till today. I know that we have OnlyFans where people are doing direct-to-consumer porn videos, but there's a dark side. I don't think anyone's surprised about that. One thing that was a big benchmark is in 1957, Bob Miser decides that he is going to include illustrations by an artist named Tom of Finland in his magazine. This is the very first time that the famous Thomas Finlandia is first published in the US and he's published in Physique Pictorial and it is a huge success obviously he becomes a very famous illustrator and his first work that was included did not involve any it did not involve any kind of explicit nudity or anything that was explicitly sexual even though it was a drawing and their illustrations at this time it was definitely not allowed it could not be published in this kind of manner they both are at this time too, they start creating the kind of stock characters that we see in homoerotic imagery of you know the policeman or kind of like the men in leather, which is one that's big. You have the the men who are dressed like they are in ancient Greece and Rome. You have the cowboy, you know. So you kind of you get these stock characters that are that are reoccurring to this day. And it kind of sets up the foundation of what later becomes pornographic imagery as we think of it. And I say that because this is really what I would consider, not to get too technical, but this is almost like proto-porn. It's not like anyone who looks at these images today would not think it's pornographic. There's no nudity. So, you know, our definition of porn has changed. But it it definitely lays the the groundwork for porn as we know it. And that really starts taking off in the 1960s, but especially in the 1970s. I know I had mentioned to you how in 1947, Bob Miser is arrested by the LAPD on obscenity charges. And this is something that, as I mentioned, was not alone to him. You had a lot of people being arrested for obscenity charges at the time. And obscenity is actually the route that the federal government and also state governments use to define if something is illegal or not. So you never actually have a ban on pornography. They just say something that's obscene is illegal. And that definition of obscenity changes a lot. But I want to take a step back because I want to I explain how we got here, how obscenity you know, the the notion of obscenity needing to be illegal originated, and then also how it changes throughout the years, because this is really important, not only as it relates to gay pornography, but also the First Amendment and what the First Amendment includes in its protections against individuals and how they express themselves. From the foundation of this country, we don't have any obscenity laws. In fact, there is nothing really on the books to deal with this stuff, anything that's inappropriate imagery, nothing like that. We don't have it. And and after the Civil War, there are, it, it's, after the Civil War, it's known that there are these French postcards, the ones that I mentioned earlier, are heavily circulating amongst the Union Army. And not long after, Congress passes a law making obscene material illegal. But the definition of obscenity is rather weak The punishment for being caught with obscenity is really weak, and this law never really gets enforced. So consequently, this man named Anthony Comstock is a grocer, and he lives in New York City, and he sees all of these, what he considers obscene literature, being just openly bought and sold in the city. And he knows that this federal law is weak, it's not being enforced, and it influences him in a way that he feels really inspired to start this cause, start the first anti-pornography cause in the U.S. And he's got this personal experience where when he was growing up, these fellow farmhands showed him some porn. It's not clear exactly what it was, but some kind of erotic imagery. And he ends up having this masturbation problem, and he... They don't say exactly what happened, but he, he claims that he was just had these compulsory sinful issues and that pornography was associated with the devil. And he is this fundamentalist Christian and he is going to take it upon himself to lobby Congress to enact stricter laws against obscenity. And he's going to use the YMCA as this social institution that's going to back him and get Congress to change the way that the law is to really cut down on obscene materials and stuff that he doesn't like. And as a result, we get the 1873 Comstock Act. And that makes the delivery of, quote, obscene, lewd, or lascivious material through the U.S. Postal Service as illegal, punishable up to 10 years in prison with hard labor. And they have to use the the Postal Service for a couple of reasons. One, it's a federal entity, so they have jurisdiction over it. It can involve anything that's being mailed between two states automatically becomes a federal, it, it becomes in the federal jurisdiction as well. And the Supreme Court at this time has basically declared that the federal government is really limited in creating Criminal statutes, that that's got to be left up to the states. That is a state's right power. It is not a federal government power. So Comstock goes back to New York. The New York legislature puts him in charge of an obscenity department and they give him full police powers. He gets to decide what's obscene, what's not. He arrests, you know, hundreds of people, thousands of people over the course of his career, goes after all of these different. Publishers, booksellers, anything that he doesn't like, and we're at this point we can be talking about novels, not even nude images, but novels that he thinks are inappropriate. And by the towards the end of the the nineteenth century, in the you know the late eighteen hundreds, you even have people in New York who are criticizing him, saying, "Hey, how come this one guy gets to decide what's appropriate or not?" Now you also have what is. A court case that comes out of the UK at the time, and this is in 1868, you have Regina v. Hicklin, and uh, basically a high court in the UK decides that obscenity is illegal, obscene material is illegal, and it works its way over into the US court system because it creates what's called the Hicklin Test. And the Hicklin Test goes on to define material for being obscene that it must exert the power to, quote, to deprave and corrupt those whose minds are open to such immoral influences, end quote. Now, this is a really broad definition, and the federal government doesn't really go on to do anything about changing this definition for like 90 years. State level, they can have different definitions about it, and they have their own court process that's going to create judicial precedence that's going to change the definition over time, but not that much. And also, if something's obscene and it never goes into the post office or never crosses state borders, it's only going to be a state issue. They, there's no federal law at this time that's going to be making it illegal. Move on, we're in the 1950s, and you have two individuals that get arrested on obscenity charges. You have a man named Samuel Roth, who is from New York State, He gets arrested on obscenity charges. And this is actually the federal crime because he's going through the post office. It's a mail order book service. And the post office has determined that the books he is shipping are obscene. You have another individual. His name is David Alberts. David Alberts is selling also obscene material. This is only in California, though. So David Alberts, he gets arrested. He then appeals towards the Superior Court of California, loses. The Superior Court says, Your erotic magazines are illegal, they're obscene. We're not overturning this conviction you have. On the opposite side, you've got Samuel Roth. He goes through the federal court system. He first goes and has it appealed through the federal courts. They say no, and they both go up to the Supreme Court in 1957.
0: The Honorable, the Chief Justice and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this honorable court.
1: They combine both cases and it comes to the court case, which is known as Roth v. United States. And at this time, you have what is called the Warren Court. And the Warren Court is probably considered the most progressive court at this time because most of the justices are from FDR, Truman. You've got a couple from Eisenhower at a certain point. But it is mostly Democrats who have nominated these justices. And they're really progressive. You know, they look at things in this kind of post-war mindset. They're a lot more modern. And and it, it's really impactful on society. And so they both petition, Alberts and, and Roth, and they say, hey, this is, this is not obscene. Um, this is not lewd or lascivious. And that this definition of obscenity is way too broad. And the most ironic way, the... Supreme Court says in a six to three decision, so you two individuals were arrested properly and we're not going to overturn your conviction. But we do need to change the scope of this definition of obscenity. We're going to agree that obscenity is not protected by the First Amendment, but we're going to change the definition of what obscenity is. So Supreme Court Justice Brennan, he writes the decision in the case and he goes on to say that All ideas having even the slightest redeeming social importance, unorthodox ideas, controversial ideas, even ideas hateful to the prevailing climate of opinion, have the full protection of the guarantees and less excludable because they encroach upon the limited area of more important interests. But implicit of the First Amendment is a rejection of obscenity as utterly without redeeming social importance. But he goes on to state, sex and obscenity are not synonymous this is the first. This is a huge deal. He states, Obscene material is material which deals with sex in a manner appealing to prurient interests, i.e. material having a tendency to excite lustful thoughts. So only sexual, that is all that it is. It's sexual. It has no redeeming social value whatsoever. Hence the editorials that you find in things like Playboy at the time. Now, he also goes on to state that The standard for judging obscenity is it's inadequate at the time and that the way going forward for judging obscenity is whether to the average person applying contemporary community standards, the dominant theme of the material taken as a whole appeals to prurient interests. And this is really important because... It uses the community as a way to define pornography, which we actually find out over time, community standards and and using jurors to decide if something is, you know, lewd or obscene, that the community is way more forgiving than the government is. And this is also important too, because different communities are obviously gonna have different standards. And if you've got someone in San Francisco, that community is gonna have a different idea of what obscenity is than if you're in Topeka, Kansas. And this is actually something that shows how there can't be federal community standards because every community is going to be different. And it localizes it in a way that is really beneficial as the first step. And around this time, you have the Mattachine Society, which it it preempts the human rights campaign. And it is the first pro-gay advocacy group in the U.S. And they start printing this magazine called One. And it's not pornographic at all. It just basically portrays gay people in a positive way. And it's written by gay people. It's for gay people. It's a gay rights magazine. And the federal government, through the post office, because they can inspect the mail to see what's obscene and what's not, they decide this is obscene. This is totally illegal because it's for gay people. And gay people are social deviants. And and anything that's for them is obscene. No matter what the material is, if it's putting gay people in a positive light, it's obscene. Now, a year after the, the Roth case, the Manischin Society takes this to the Supreme Court and it's called 1 Inc. v. Ollison. Olison is the head of the post office at the time in Los Angeles. Now, the Supreme Court never does oral arguments on this, which is the most anticlimactic aspect. And I say that because this is the first pro-gay rights ruling the Supreme Court has. And they don't even argue it. They just say, hey, Roth, what we decided a year ago, the Roth case, this protects this. And it's unanimous. I mean, all nine justices agree. Can you imagine nine justices agreeing on something like this today? It's anything that's of the culture wars, anything like that. I mean, it's going to be 5-4 most likely. Maybe with the Supreme Court changing with having Amy Coney Barrett, You could have more 6-3 decisions, but this is rare. So all nine of them agree. No, Roth protects this. We've set legal precedent. This is not obscene. We're going to go on to the next case. That involves a man named Lynn Womack. Lynn Womack runs a beefcake magazine in Washington, D.C. And the post office says it's illegal. What you've got is obscene because you are showing nude men, Semi-nude men. It's homoerotic. It's for gay people. And and we're it's obscene. We're not gonna deliver it. And he takes them to court and says, No, you can't do this. So goes up to the Supreme Court and they actually argue this over two days. It's another thing that's kind of crazy to think about, and I say that because the Supreme Court never does that anymore. And rightfully so, they have such a large amount of cases on their docket that when I listen to this, the oral arguments, it's about uh, two and a half hours total. They kind of ramble, and, and and it really could be a lot more concise. But so they go to the Supreme Court, and I'm I'm using what's called the Oye project, and Oye was what you heard in the beginning of this segment before the Supre- the Supreme Court opening ritual. And the Oye project for Supreme Court nerds is actually super cool. It, what they've done is they've taken all of the Supreme Court oral arguments and they put them on the internet for free and anyone can access this. And actually what they do is when you're listening to the recordings, they highlight the Supreme Court justice that's that's asking questions to the, the petitioners. And so you get to see how how the justices were arranged at the time. And when I start listening to this, I already knew that the decision was going to be, but when I started listening to this, you kind of envision yourself being in front of these nine old white men and they're sitting there and they're talking about homoerotic magazines. And it's almost like you get this feeling almost like your parents have found gay porn and you're like, Oh God, I've got to explain myself. Okay. I've got to explain myself to my grandparents and they've just caught me with this physique magazine. And it's obviously, you know, homoerotic and gay. And when you listen to the attorney who's representing Womack, he literally reminds you of Joe Pesci in My Cousin Vinny. And the guy, he seems so unsure of himself. And, and so he starts off, his first argument is, well, these are, these are physique magazines, and they're really just for bodybuilders. I know that the men are in loincloths, but this has nothing to do with gay people. This is only because they're bodybuilders and people who are in shape. And it's like, no one's buying it. I mean, you could tell he's not buying it, but... Uh, it also just, you get this idea that the Supreme Court justices aren't buying it either. And so he goes on to, with a lot more astute argument about why this is not obscene. He then goes on to say, the attorney for, for manual enterprises goes on to say, well, we've got these pinups, you know, we, we've got these semi-nude and, and nude women that straight people get to have. Why, why do homosexuals have to be second-class citizens? And the Supreme Court's super receptive of that argument. And this is 1962. And they're, they're listening. And, and they're agreeable about it. But the Supreme Court, and its earnest questioning, says, well, there are some magazines that do include nude imagery in them. And they go, yeah, yeah, there are some. And the, the Supreme Court justices ask, well, they also have advertisements in the back that advertise for, for more sexual imagery that people can buy. And and this is the vessel for, for maybe possibly obscene material being bought and sold and going through the, the postal service. So Justice Harlan is the one who writes the opinion. And it ends up being a 6-1 decision because two justices are not a part of the case. One is for health reasons. The other one's not involved at all. There is some disagreement between the justices on how it is constitutional. But a majority agree that These beefcake magazines are constitutionally protected. First Amendment, freedom of speech, they're not obscene. Still say that obscenity is not protected by the First Amendment. It's still illegal, but that does not include this. And one of the things they say is you cannot include the audience in determining decency and prurient interests. And Harlan struggles with dealing with this prurient appeal definition, but In the end he just says, this is constitutionally protected and just because it's for gay people doesn't mean it is obscene. And after this court decision, it opens up the floodgates and on what is allowed with pornography. And it is a huge benchmark case that allows pornography to really take off. Now, one thing you have to realize too is that a lot of these beefcake magazine, either people who were the photographers or were involved in it, a lot of them were arrested on obscenity charges. And this is the first time that they don't have to worry about that anymore. But you're going to have to listen to my next episode that I'm going to actually have out much more quickly than, than this one for a lot of different reasons. But it is going to include... Gay pornography and its history after this moment. So stay tuned. It's going to be really exciting, and I think everyone's going to love it. Hey,
0: thanks for listening, folks. Be sure to cruise on over to the history of gay sex for the conclusion of this two part series on gay porn. Stuart does a fantastic job, and I'm really looking forward to what else is to come from him in the future. So, check out his show, subscribe, I'm doing the same thing, I'm already subscribed, I listen every time. Also, remember, if you know of other shows or individual episodes from shows, that would make great guest episodes here from across the sex and gender spectrum, but especially for women who love other women, just because, as we mentioned, it's so much harder to find that history. Absolutely, please, please, please drop me a line. You can find me on social media at at historyofsexpod or send an email to historyofsexpod at gmail.com. Meanwhile, if you like what we're doing on this show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts for our show. Or you can pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a beefcake or... Beefcake S, bruising through the back alley photo circuit, or whatever you want, I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg, that's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. Alright folks, next month, if all goes according to plan, cross your fingers, no guarantees, we will be saddling up and riding out to the wild, wild west. And we will be exploring all of the ways that the American frontier was nothing like what you've seen in the movies. From men who loved other men, to women who loved other women, to cross-dressers, to Native American third genders. It really was a wild frontier, but in ways that you have probably never heard before. So grab your and hats and sombreros, folks. That is what is planned for next month. I'll see you then. I'm BT Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin MacLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.